Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This 32. Exodus 32. As many of you know, back in December, I engaged in a live YouTube debate on the doctrine of the Trinity with a man named Dr. Del Tuggy. And I didn't know much about Dr. Tuggy before I engaged in this debate, but he is a Unitarian. He denies the doctrine of the Trinity. He does not believe that there is one God existing as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And as I engaged in that debate and as I was mentally trying to work through the issues, in my heart I was praying for his salvation because I knew that he did not know our great God. And he considers himself to be evangelical, but he denies the inerrancy of Scripture. And I have also come to know that Dr. Tuggy is also an open theist. Now, you may say, what is an open theist? Well, let's talk about the word theist first. Theist comes from the Greek word theos, which means God. We get the word theology, the study of God. And so you put open before the word God. Here's what an open theist believes. They believe that God does not know the future or that God limits his knowledge of the future because there are millions and millions of people that are making millions and millions of choices. And since those choices haven't taken place yet in time, God doesn't know what choices people will make. And so God does not know the future. Open theists also believe that you can change God's mind. God does change. God can, basically what they believe is God looks back as events unfold and he takes in knowledge and he learns as it progresses. And then sometimes he jumps in and makes mid-course corrections off the fly to try to get things back to the way they were supposed to be. And over the past few months, as I've been engaging in these things, I've had to think about some core doctrines about who God is. Is God, is God a trinity? Yes. Does God know the future? Yes. And this ultimately comes down to a worship issue. That's really what it comes down to, a worship issue. Will we worship God the way He has told us to worship Him? Or will we break the first commandment and break the second commandment and worship a God that we made up, either a false God or a God that we've just kind of made up in our imaginations, a convenient, comfortable God that fits our paradigm of what we want Him to be? And last week, this was the very issue that the Israelites dealt with in the golden calf. Were they going to worship the true God of Israel, or something that they fashioned with their own hands. So we launched into this whole definition of idolatry last week. What is idolatry? It's insecurity. It's fear. It's, it's God had 
spoken to them. God was invisible speaking to them, but they didn't trust God's word. They had to fashion something they could see, they could touch, they could manipulate, something that they could control. They wanted to do things on their own timetable. And then, remember, Aaron gave in to peer pressure, and so they crafted the golden calf. And remember, God says, look how quickly they've turned away from me. So last week, the question was, what is idolatry? Today's question is a little bit different. Today's question is, how does God respond to this idolatry? So we're going to backtrack. We're going to read what we read last week, but we're going to set the stage. So let's, let's start in Exodus 32, verse 1, and go through verse 14, just so we can see this again in all of its graphic depiction of, of gross idolatry. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... Remember, he'd been up there 40 days and 40 nights. The people gathered around themselves together and to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's what we looked at last week. That is idolatry. How does God respond? Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen the people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. From the disaster, he had spoken of bringing on his people. God is hot with anger, burning hot anger. So much so, he wants to destroy Israel and start over with Moses. And Moses, as a good defense lawyer, stands in the gap and begins to pray. 
says, God, you may want to think about this. You may think, think twice about this, God. So Moses responds to God's desire to consume them with three arguments. And these are really good arguments. Here's argument number one that Moses gives to God. He says, why would you want to cancel out or nullify the divine power you showed by delivering the Israelites from Egypt. God, you showed power. Why, why do you want to nullify that power that you showed? Notice what he says in verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God, implored, prayed, sought the Lord. Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? God, you brought us out with power. Why, why would you want to cancel out that power? That was some great power, God. You got us through the Red Sea. It doesn't make sense, God, to save us so powerfully just to destroy us. It doesn't make sense, God. It would cancel out that, that power that you put on display. Okay, argument number two. If you do this, God, Egypt's going to have the last laugh. Egypt's going to laugh and say, this is, doesn't make any sense. You, you brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt just to, just to crush them here in the desert? Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Was it all for nothing, God? Remember, God, how you systematically dismantled all of their, their false gods with the ten plagues and how you, you sent the angel of death on Passover and you, you brought us out and you destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Was that all for naught, God? If you did all that to the Egyptians and you turn around and destroy the Israelites, the Egyptians are going to have the last laugh. And then argument number three, the most important. God, you can't do this because you made a promise. And you never go back on your promises. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and the land that I have promised I will give you your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. God, you made a promise. You made a covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would give us the land. And God, you never go back on your promises. So Moses pleads like a very good defense lawyer. Three very persuasive arguments. Moses lays out a valid case to the Lord. Now here's the question you should be asking. Well, does God need this information from Moses? Is Moses telling something that God doesn't already know? It's kind of like the impeachment trial going on right now. Okay, the House managers are making their argument to the Senate. The President's defense is making their arguments to the Senate. And both sides are trying to present argumentation to sway, to convince the, the senators that are maybe on the fence to come over to their side. So both sides are being very persuasive. So the whole point is, who can I persuade to come to my side? Is that what Moses is doing here? Is he trying to persuade God to come over to his side? Well, from a human perspective, yeah, Moses is doing that. Moses is pleading and praying and persuading and saying, God you, need to, you, God, you need to think twice about this. What is prayer, actually? Okay, From a human perspective, do we know God's secret things? When we pray, we're not telling God what he doesn't already know, but what do we do when we pray? We beg, we plead, we ask, we, we, try, to, we try to 
plead our case before God. And Moses is doing this here. But is God being persuaded to change his mind about destroying Israel based upon Moses' stellar record and argumentation? Let's remember what Jesus told us before he gave us the words to the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. God knew what he was going to do before Moses pled with him. So what does God do? Your Bible there in verse 14 says, The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. God was angry. Here's the story. God's angry. Moses prays and persuades God, and God doesn't pour out his anger. Okay, we can go home now. That's the story. This passage brings up two very important controversial questions that many people struggle with. You may know people who are skeptical of Christianity and have these questions. You may have read this passage yourself and asked these questions yourself. And so, what are the two questions that this passage brings up? Now, I thought I just came to church for Pastor Sean to tell me what I needed to know and I could go home. And No, I'm going to make you think this morning. Dare I say, make you think, make you ponder, make you be exposed. So here's the point. If we're going to be honest with what the Bible says, we got to face it head on. And you know me, I'm not going to just beat around the bush. I'm not just going to tiptoe through the tulips. We're going to look at these issues. What are these two issues? Here's the first. God seems to be really, really angry. Burning hot with wrath. What is the wrath of God exactly? Does God get angry? A lot of people in our culture struggle with a God of wrath, a God of of anger who punishes sin. They They have a hard time coming to grasp with that. And I'm talking about believers. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? I'm not quite sure if I understand this whole God of wrath thing. I've always thought God was a God of love. What's this whole burning with hot wrath? Here's the second question. Can we, through our prayers, change God's mind. Did Moses do such a good job of praying and persuading and pleading that God was convinced, finally? God somehow changed his plan, and God changed his mind. Two questions. God's wrath, what is it? Can we change God's mind? These go to the very nature of who God is. So let's address the first controversial question what is God's wrath because look at the wording that's used here look at verse 10 God says therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them (laughs) my wrath may burn hot okay then in verse 11 why does your wrath burn hot verse 12 Turn from your burning anger. Sounds like God's really hot. He's angry. So much so he wants to destroy them. Wrath. 
Now, this is the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament speak about the wrath of God? Well, yes, it does. Romans 1.18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness. Paul's very clear. Right now, the wrath of God is being revealed. And then there's a future day of wrath. Paul says in Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's going to be a day of wrath where God's going to pour out his wrath, the day of judgment. Glenn, one of our elders, read this earlier during our time of confession from Colossians 3, 5-6. through Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You look all over the Bible, and it's got the wrath of God is here, the wrath of God is coming, the wrath of God is burning hot against Israel. What's the wrath of God? And we need to be very careful when we discuss this issue because it's a loaded term. It's loaded with a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation. The Bible expresses attributes of who God is. God is holy. God is loving. God is light. God is spirit. God is compassionate. God's abounding in steadfast love. I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke, starting out the first of the year, and I was struck by something that Jesus said Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, but in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he said, God the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So God is love, God is kind, God is holy. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Wrath is an action of God. It's an administration of justice that God delivers or God responds. It's an act of punishing sin. Holiness is an attribute of God. Righteousness is an attribute of God. Wrath is the way God expresses that in punishment. How he executes his punishment. J.I. Packer states it this way. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It's a righteous anger. John Stott gives another good definition. He says, Human anger, although there is such a thing as righteous indignation, is most very unrighteous. Okay, human anger. Human anger is irrational, uncontrollable emotion, containing much vanity, animosity, malice, and desire for revenge. It should go without saying that God's anger is absolutely free of all such poisonous ingredients. What is human anger? Well, I'll give you a perfect example. If we were to go over to the nursery and we were to put two toddlers in a corner and give them one toy, you're going to see some burning wrath. It's going to be irrational. It's going to be emotional. It's not going to be a holy wrath. But it'll be wrath. If God just sat back and tolerated sin, especially the gross idolatry here of making the gold, if God just stood back and said, okay, Israel, that's cool, go ahead and make a golden calf, we would question his righteousness. 
we would question his holiness. Think about this as a parent. Let's say your child does something awful. Like they either could get them killed or do something they 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 totally ruin their life. Now, out of extreme love for your child, what would you do? You'd punish them. And you'd punish them out of love, but think about this, parents. Have you ever punished purely with no hint of selfishness or self-preservation when you punish your child? We as parents can punish, but our punishment is never, and our attitude is never 100% holy. We would probably punish them with some type of self-interest. They made me look bad. Sometimes we fly off the handle. Sometimes you have emotions you couldn't control when you punish your child. God, when he punishes sin, is always holy, he's always perfect, he's always righteous. It's never petty, it's never vindictive, it's never out of control. We must never confuse wrath with rage. There's a difference. What's rage? Rage is out of control. Rage is often petty. Rage is often vindictive and and sometimes senseless. Wrath, on the other hand, is always under control. It's always right. It's always holy. It's a righteous anger that God has. It's not God suddenly flaring up with anger like he lost control. He had a bad hair day. He's he's going off the handle. It's It's a settled opposition to sin. So let's ask the question. Does God have every right to be angry over Israel's sin? Yes. Does God have every right to destroy them? Yes. Now, why is it so important to understand the wrath of God for us? It's important because, number one, churches don't talk about it, and you may never hear about it out there in the culture, but it's important because it shows us how serious God is about our idolatry. We must never minimize the corrupting effects of idolatry, nor God's anger against sin. You see, our culture doesn't understand this. You begin to talk about God being a God who expresses wrath against sin, or you begin to talk about punishment, or you begin to talk about hell, all these things that our culture doesn't like, they say, now wait a minute, hold hold, time out. You Christians are being bigoted, you're being narrow-minded, you're being, a, you're, you're, being, you're, you're, just, you're, you're being a little bit too fanatical here. You're being intolerant. Because what have they created in their minds? My God would never send anybody to hell. My God would never punish sin. My God just kind of lets me do what I want to do. Most people think God is a grandfather sitting on a rocking chair up in heaven just laughing at people down there, letting them do whatever they want to do. And if they do something really, really bad... God gets angry. So if you're an axe murderer, yeah, God gets mad. If you rob a bank or or hold up an ATM, God's really mad. But what about gossip? What about premarital sex? What about lust? What about anger? What about backbiting? What about selfishness? Does God show anger and punish these sins as well? So... We need to keep the Bible in perspective. Is God absolutely loving? Yes. Does God have the right to punish sin? Yes. 
Is God obligated to save Israel here with their sin? No. Should God have destroyed Israel? Leave that up to God to answer, but God had every right to express wrath. So we need to understand that the Bible teaches that God does show wrath against sin. God will show wrath against sin. There will be a day of wrath coming on that final day. You cannot read your Bible and deny it. If you're going to be honest with the Scriptures, it teaches it from Genesis to Revelation. Second question, controversial question. Can we change God's mind? Look at verse 14. The Lord, after Moses persuades and Moses prays and Moses gives them these good arguments, God was going to destroy him. Moses steps in and argues, then God doesn't destroy them. The Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, the ESV says the Lord relented. Now, if you have a King James Version of the Bible, I'm sorry that this passage of Scripture translates it the way it does. The King James Version translates the Lord repented of the evil. And that's confusing. The Lord repented? That makes it sound like God did something wrong he needed to repent of. Does God repent? The New American Standard Bible gives the Lord changed his mind about the harm he would do to the people. I talked earlier about open theism. Open theists who deny that God knows the future and and believe that we can change God's mind, they go directly to this passage of Scripture to prove their point. I've got a verse here that says, God, you can change God's mind. God had a plan. You can step in and change God's plan. You can convince God's plan. You can talk God out of stuff that he was going to do. You can change God's mind. God can be changed by human persuasion. Now, let me give you three biblical arguments why I reject that idea. I do not believe that we can change God's mind, and I do not believe that God changes his mind. Now, let me give you these three arguments. First, God has already revealed himself in Exodus as the unchanging I am. Now, let me just teach you something here about Bible study. One of the principles of interpreting the Bible is this. Passages that are clear, that speak about God's character, should help inform other passages that aren't so clear. So we have some very explicit statements about who God is out of his own mouth, and then we have descriptive statements of some things that God does. So what I'm saying is when God says something about who he is, we take that to help inform those other passages that we may not quite fully understand. But Exodus 32, 14 is not in a vacuum. It's not like it just kind of jumps out. You can take this verse out of context. It comes as a part of a whole story here. And how did God reveal himself to Israel, to Moses, back in Exodus chapter 3? Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. I have always been, I will always be, and I am the one who defines reality. I am. Nobody can just stand up and say, I am. 
I mean, you can, but you'd be kind of weird. I am Sean. I am blonde. I'm married to Don. I'm six foot two. I'm a human being. You think I would be weird if I came up here and said, I am. You are what? No, I just am. Okay, you are what? I am. Everything about me is contingent on somebody else. God's the only one that can say, I am, period. You can't influence me. You can't change me. I am who I am. As a matter of fact, listen to Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This is God again speaking. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now leave that up there for a moment because in verse 10, God says I declare the end from the beginning. Not just I predict or I guess. No, I declare it to be. How can God declare the end to be from the beginning? Because God already knows it. God already planned it. His counsel shall stand. He knows the end. He knows the beginning. He controls the future. He knows the future. Not just he's a good predictor of the future. He knows it because he ordained the future to be what it is. Job 42.2, at the end of Job, Job says, I know you can do all things, talking to God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God has a purpose. You can't thwart it. You can't stop it. Ephesians 1.11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, or the purpose of him, who does what? What does God do? God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God doesn't learn things. God doesn't get surprised by things. God doesn't somehow react, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I guess I better come in and clean things up. No, he works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Now, Numbers 23, 19 is very clear. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now, you can learn a lot about what God is by scriptures that say what God is not. When God tells you something he's not, he's telling you what he is. And what is God saying here? I'm not a man that I would lie or change my mind. If I said it, I'm going to do it. I don't change my mind because I'm a man. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do we change our minds? Because we've been persuaded by evidence. We learn new things. We take in knowledge as it comes to us. We sometimes make mid-course corrections. We don't know the future. That's our limitation. Why do we change our minds? Because we're limited. We don't know things. God is not a human and has limitations that we have that he would change his mind. It does not mean here that God changed his mind when it said God relented from his punishment. It cannot mean that. Because Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, this is a statement from God's own mouth. God says, I am. I do not change. I'm not a man that I should change my mind. I declare the end from the beginning. These are explicit statements from God's own mouth about who he is. And then James 1.17, Every good 
gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I believe you, you have to make a solid case here that the Bible says God does not change or God does not change his mind. He's got a sovereign decree that he's working out and it cannot be stopped. He doesn't learn things. God absolutely knows the future. God is absolutely sovereign. That's my first argument. But let me give you a second argument. We must understand the meaning of the word relent. What does it mean there in verse 14 that says the Lord relented? Again, the King James Version says the Lord repented. New American Standard says the Lord changed his mind. Are those good translations of that Hebrew word? In the Hebrew construction that it's found there. It's a very rare Hebrew construction. It's only found one other place in the Old Testament. What it means is, if you look at the lexicons, if you look up in dictionaries, of Hebrew dictionaries, the word literally means to be moved to pity. To have compassion. Nothing about repenting. Nothing about changing your mind. It's just the Lord had compassion. The only other place in the New Testament, I mean, on the Old Testament, where this word is used is in Psalm 90, verse 13. The same exact construction in the Hebrew. The only other place that, that, that this word relented shows up is in Psalm 90, verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Have pity. Have pity is the same word here for relented. Have pity. Doesn't mean God changed his mind. Doesn't mean God repented. It just simply means God showed compassion. When God relented from punishing Israel, he didn't repent because he did something wrong. He didn't change his mind because Moses was so persuasive. The word in the Hebrew simply means he had compassion. That's why I think the ESV probably gets to the best translation. He relented. What's the word relent mean? Relent means just to have compassion. He didn't execute justice. He showed mercy. Just because God announced to Moses that he would destroy does not mean that God would destroy. So, number one, we've got some clear teachings in the Scripture that say God does not change his mind from God's own mouth. Number two, the meaning of this Hebrew word simply just means God showed mercy. God showed compassion. But here's the third one. I think it's the most important. And it's part of Moses' argument. God made an unchangeable covenant with Israel that he could not break. God made an unchangeable covenant with Israel that he could not break. Why did God choose Israel? You may say, well, because they were, they were God's chosen people. They were good. They were worthy. They, they merited it. No, what does God say in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9? God says to Israel, it's not because you were more than number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and chesed, steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his covenants to a thousand generations. So here's the question. Why did God choose Israel? Answer, because God wanted to choose Israel. And God swore an oath. To Israel. 
It wasn't because Israel deserved it. They were just as rebellious as any other nation. If God's covenant to Israel was unconditional, meaning he chose them and he entered into a covenant with them, an unbreakable covenant with them, would their sin at the golden calf cancel or nullify or break that covenant that God made with them? Would God stop loving them just because they sinned? No. Romans eleven twenty nine, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What is, and he's talking, if you were here Wednesday night, with our, we went through Romans 11, he's talking to the nation of Israel there. God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. What does irrevocable mean? They can't be changed. They can't be overturned. They can't be done away with. If God has called people to himself, that calling is irrevocable. And then 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay, in the golden calf, were they faithless? You bet. But he remained faithful because for him to punish Israel, he would have to basically deny himself. Think about this. If God destroyed Israel because his word is bound up in who he is and he made a covenant with Israel, in essence, God would be saying, if I destroyed you, Israel, I would be basically destroying myself because I made a covenant with you that cannot be broken. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, there's a lot going on in this Hebrews passage of Scripture. Let's just say this. The writer bar- borrows from the legal world. When you, when, you go, when you sign a contract, when you enter into a contract, you're signing on the dotted line that you're going to obey by the rules of the contract. And so the writer says God did two unchangeable things. God entered into an oath, and God gave his word. Now you say, well, why, why isn't just God's word good enough? Well, God's word is good enough, but to show that God's serious, God entered into an oath, into a covenant with the people of Israel to show that this was unbreakable, this was unchangeable. So, God never changes. God cannot lie. God's calling is irrevocable. God swore an unchangeable oath on his very character and word to Israel. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. God is unchanging. He doesn't have regrets. He doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. He cannot be persuaded by, by human prayer. But why is this important? Think about the implications of this. If you could change God's mind, what security does that give towards you? If God can be persuaded by you, What's to say tomorrow, he says, you know what? I've been talked out of saving you, so I'm not going to keep you saved anymore. Do you want a God who can be talked out of his purposes? Your salvation would be on very shaky ground if you had a God who could change, a God who could be persuaded, a God who could be convinced. Would you want to worship that type of God? A God that doesn't know the future. 
a God that could change his mind on a whim. So there's two controversial questions. What's the wrath of God? And can God change his mind? Now, we can sit here all day and say, oh, these are great, deep theological questions, Pastor Sean, and I'm so excited that you brought these great theological questions, but there's the point of the passage we can't miss. What's the point of the passage? Israel sins. God gets angry. Moses prays. God relents. Moses prayed to God not to change his mind or persuade him, but to point us to Jesus as the one mediator who has stands in the gap between a God who has every right to express his wrath against us for our sin because we're unholy. We commit idolatry. Listen to how the psalmist explains what Moses did here. Psalm 106.23 Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach to turn away the wrath of God as God's chosen one. If that doesn't point to Jesus, I don't know what does. You can answer all the theological deep questions in this passage of Scripture. Does God express righteous anger? Yes. Does God have wrath? Yes. Can God change his mind? No. But where the rubber meets the road here is what Moses is doing that points us to Jesus. Jesus is God's chosen who stood in the breach. The breach was called the cross. And what did he do when he stood in the breach, when he stood on the cross? He took God's wrath against us, turned it away from us, and took it upon himself as our one mediator so that we would not be destroyed. Think about it this way. We are just as idolatrous as the Israelites And God has every right to send us to hell. But what does God do? God sent Jesus to be the one mediator, to stand in the breach, to to, to lift his arms out on the cross, to take the punishment that we deserve. That's why 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says this. There's one God and there's one mediator. One mediator, one go-between. Between a holy God and men. who's Who's that one mediator? Who's the one that stands in the breach? Who's the one that turns aside God's wrath? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Does God have a right to punish us with anger, burning hot anger? Absolutely. You've got to come to grips with that this morning, that God has every right to punish you for your sin. If you don't understand that, you need to. Because salvation will not be sweet until you understand that. Does God show us compassion and mercy? Does God relent from punishing us? Absolutely. How? Why? Is it because we deserve the mercy? Is it because we're so good? It's because we earned it? Or is it because Jesus stood in our place? Jesus stood in the breach. Jesus is our go-between. Jesus is our mediator. So you need to rest in that security. We have an unchanging God 
who loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you would never have to experience his wrath. Rest secure in that. Rest secure that God's anger against your sin has been fully satisfied by Jesus. And when you trust Jesus to forgive you of all your sins, what do you receive? Mercy, grace, a relenting of God's anger. The only response we can have to this is to fall on our knees and just praise the Lord that he did it. Didn't have to do it, but sent Jesus to do it. God relented from destroying you because Jesus stood in the breach for you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. If you're not moved by that, I don't know what I can say anymore to convince you. God's got to grip your heart. And let's go to him right now and ask him to do that. In this passage of scripture, we've seen that you are a God who expresses wrath. You do hate our sin. You do take offense at our sin. You do take offense at our idolatry. But because of your plan and your purpose and your love, just like Moses stood in the breach for the Israelites, you sent Jesus to stand in our place. So Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross as our one mediator, turning aside the wrath of God. We are alive this morning because you relented from your anger and poured it out on Jesus in our place. You are a God that does not change. You're a God that absolutely knows the future. You're a sovereign God that we can trust. Lord, my prayer is if there's anybody in this room today who hasn't come face to face with their own personal sin and their need to have that sin forgiven by Jesus, because if not, they will be storing up wrath for the day of wrath to come. Today would be their day of salvation. Lord, would those who are here today that don't have a relationship with Christ, would they look to Jesus as their Savior? Would they trust in Jesus as their Savior? Would they cast themselves at his mercy and cry out, Save me, Lord Jesus. I don't deserve it, but save me. And the promise from Romans is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would many call upon the name of the Lord this morning? Lord, help us to go out this week with the confidence that you are a God who knows the future. You're a God who has a sovereign plan. You're not a man that you would change your mind. You are a God who knows the end from the beginning. You're a God who, who has a sovereign plan that cannot be thwarted. You're a God who is on your throne, ruling and reigning, and we can rest secure in that. Lord, help us go out this week with the confidence that our sins have been forgiven, and we serve the sovereign I am. We are in the hands of the potter. And as the song says, mold me, shape me, use me, fill me. I give my life to the potter's hand. Would that be our prayer this week as we walk out of here? We will give our lives 
to the potter's hand. Not to our own hands, but to the potter's hand to shape us and to mold us. All for your glory, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.